As we turn to God's word together, let's look to the Lord again in prayer. Father, I pray that you will help us to remember that true believing begins with beholding. Beholding what you've revealed about yourself, the salvation you give, and the life that you promise in your holy word. In Christ's name, amen. The Bible says that the cross is the clinching proof of God's love for us. In Galatians chapter 2, there's the little verse where Paul says, The Son of God loved me. And the proof, the next line is, And gave himself for me. And yet, if you're anything like me, some of us, even as believers, and I've been around the Bible and Christianity, and I've known a lot of theology for a long, long time, but I find periodically that I continue to struggle with the reality of living confidently in God's love for me, living confidently day by day with that assurance, kind of unshakable, not avoiding it, not turning away from wondering whether it's really true. This week happened to be the birthday of Dr. Greer. I've mentioned many times, a lot of you have heard me refer to him as a, a real mentor, a spiritual father, and a great teacher of God's Word. And it occurred to me, I came upon a line, I came upon a quote as I was rereading some of his writings, that when he defined faith, because that's what we're talking about, real faith in God's love and the promise of the gospel, real trust that that's actually experientially, existentially, daily true, that real faith is confidence plus allegiance. I remembered as I read the quote that he would say that time and time again. He'd use the word faith and then he'd back up a little bit so he would clarify what he meant because that's one of those theology words. It can be just a jargon word that we sort of hear and we think we know what we just heard, but maybe its meaning can be missed. And so he would say confidence plus allegiance. And that's what I want us to think about from some key passages this morning. One of the key passages about faith was read in 1 Peter chapter 1 as our scripture reading. And there is just a real wisdom. I invite you to go back sometime this Lord's Day and see the interplay between faith and the new life in Christ. One of the other famous passages is Hebrews chapter 11, beginning in verse 6. Without faith, it is impossible to please God, because anyone who comes to Him must Believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. There's a lot even in that verse. First of all, we have to believe that he exists. And again, if you're anything like me, it's easy to kind of skip by to be sort of religiously polite and say, well, of course I believe that he exists. Because, I, you know, I mean, that's, I've just been around that. I've been pro-God for years now. Of course I believe that he exists. And when you're a pastor, I mean, you bet, I mean, that's part of the job description. But to believe it deeply, 
and to believe that he exists the way the Bible says he exists, as holy, as righteous, as sovereign, almighty, always in control, to believe that he exists as always gracious, always loving to those who put their trust in him. I've said before that Jesus' striking phrase, ye of little faith, and the first time I came across a commentator who rendered it this way, you who barely believe, you who just barely believe, you believe, but just barely, that's little faith. And I want for you, I want for us that we deeply believe, that we have a deep confidence in the God as he portrays himself because his word is his self-disclosure. And he shows himself to be holy and righteous and just. He's powerful, he's in control, and he's good. He's always good. It shows up in Hebrews chapter 11 how faith leads to allegiance then, it leads to obedience. By faith, Noah, when warned about things not yet seen, what did he do? In holy fear, he built an ark. Why? Because he believed what God said about the coming flood. Faith produced the obedience, the action. By faith, Abraham, when called to go to a place he would later receive his inheritance, what did he do? He obeyed and went even though he didn't know where he was going. It wasn't blind faith. It's not blind faith when you've got a word of God, a promise of God, a command of God as the basis for it. But his confidence in God's word led to allegiance and obedience in living in light of it. And so Hebrews 3.14 says, We have come to share in Christ if we hold firmly till the end the confidence we had it first. That's the challenge for some of us too. When we first came to Christ, it was real and it was poignant and it was powerful and it was the most important thing, obviously the most important thing. That was the confidence that we had it first. But the book of Hebrews talks about this dangerous possibility and it doesn't often talk about bolting from faith, from confidence in God and allegiance to God. It talks about drifting. We have to hold firmly till the end the confidence we had at first. We're saved by faith, the Bible says in a passage like Ephesians 2.8. We walk and live by faith. So it's pretty important that we have a a deep and a growing understanding, let alone experience of what that means. And so here's the main idea I would say this morning as I've thought it through these different passages, and it's been a very heartening, encouraging study for me after all these years to try to think more deeply about these things. Faith in its fullest biblical sense is believing in God and having confidence in God, in His power, in His control, in His wisdom, and maybe most challengingly, in His love and goodness, including to me. Confidence, believing deeply in that. 
in a way that inevitably produces allegiance to God that will be expressed in obedience. And all of this as a response to the written down Word of God illumined by the Holy Spirit that we have in Scripture. Back to Dr. Greer's simple phrase, confidence plus allegiance. When both are present, faith is real and saving and life-changing and God-pleasing. He wrote, Dr. Grin, with a quote that kind of triggered all of this into my mind, belief in God as he is revealed in Jesus Christ is the very essence of faith. You've seen me, Jesus said. You've seen the Father. So the faith we're talking about isn't vague. It's not make it up however you want. It's not a customized spirituality. It is faith in God as he's revealed in Jesus Christ. And to believe in God implies trusting Him, being loyal to Him, obeying Him, and loving Him. Faith is the cardinal allegiance in life. This loyalty to God as revealed in Christ is not one among many loyalties in life. It is the loyalty, the ultimate trust in God that gives meaning to all of life. Now, maybe some of you think, I don't know, allegiance as a definition of faith? It might surprise you to know that the first definition given by Merriam-Webster Dictionary Online for the word faith, the entry faith, is allegiance to a duty or a person. We talk about someone acting in good faith. It's acting in allegiance, in loyalty. And that is an essential ingredient to what the Bible word means. Do you remember that in the fruit of the Spirit that is listed in Galatians chapter 5, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, almost every Bible translation renders it. But the word is the same word that nearly every other time in the New Testament is rendered faith. Because the Greek word, the New Testament word for faith, combines both ideas, faith and faithfulness, trust and allegiance, loyalty. That's what New Testament faith really is. And so I ask you, do you really deeply trust in the goodness of God towards you? You know, it's possible, some of us do this, we believe deeply in the love of God in a kind of a generic sense, or as it applies to others. But when we're honest, and a lot of times we don't want to even go there and think about it very deeply, but when we're honest, we can have this sneaking suspicion, this gnawing doubt in the back of our mind, in the back of our heart. Well, God doesn't love me that way. Why? What is it that erodes confidence in God's goodness and love even in the hearts and lives of those who would want to be known as believers in God. And to me, as I think about it in my own life and in my own experience, and again, it's really taken a while for this to kind of bubble up to the surface. To me, I think the problem was there were two or three very real 
I would say, hardships in my life, things that happen. Now, compared to most people, I've suffered very, very little, and I am fully aware of that. And after going to a place like Indonesia, I'm even more aware of that. Most of the time, we live with incredible comfort and prosperity. But even here, there are very real times when the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune hit us too. And it did in my life. I'm not even going to say what they are for different reasons. What they are doesn't matter. They're not the same as yours. But I can imagine that almost every person in the room, there's this or that that you would identify. And again, you almost don't want to go there, but you think that nearly did me in. That was devastating. And I made a fatal mistake I didn't really know I was making. I let those hardships count as evidence against the reality that God loved me. And what I've come to see is that was a false move. That was a real mistake to make. I've said this from time to time before. I think that many, many of us live with what I would call kind of a prosperity gospel light. Not the full-fledged false teaching of someone like Mr. Osteen, but a milder version of it that says, you know, if I'm basically faithful, if I'm basically obedient, I might have trouble, I might get sick, but surely God will through the doctors, through the surgeons, through whoever, I'll get past it and I won't be sick anymore. I won't be, it's not really, really ill for a really long time. And if I'm faithful in the way I do my business and treat my employees and I tithe my earnings and that sort of thing, that, well, you know, I may have reversals, but probably it's going to come around and I'll have a testimony and I'll have a story about how, you know, a few years later, and then it was great again. I think that many of us live, and I know that some of us do, because as a pastor over several years now, I hear it a lot of times across the counseling desk, that idea that, you know, all in all, given what I am and what I've done, I think I'm entitled to better. And even if we don't put it quite in those terms, somewhere, some of us at least, still think, God, you're in control ultimately somehow. There's no getting around that finally. And you either purposed this or you permitted it. And I don't see how that fits with you really and truly loving me. I just don't conceive how that goes with your always and only good to me. But that is a false belief. The Bible, especially once you get to the fullness of the New Testament, all over the place sends us the signal that even as believers and dearly loved children of God, we are not in any sense immune to the hardships that go with living in a fallen world. Not in any. Jesus said, in the world 
you will have tribulation. Paul said, through many hardships, we must enter the kingdom of God. Tribulation, persecution is primary in the New Testament, but illness, Paul's thorn in the flesh that was tormenting to him and never taken away. Poverty, you'll have tribulations, brother or sister. You'll have heartbreaking relationships. You'll have prodigal sons and daughters. And sometimes they may never come home. You'll have tribulation in this world, Jesus says, because this world is the dominion of darkness. This world lies in the lap of the wicked one. There's a glorious kingdom coming I've overcome the world, Jesus says. That's the kingdom to come. And every blessing you'll experience and every healthy hope will be realized. But that's then. That's not now. Of course, there are wonderful blessings of being a believer now. But what I'm saying to you and what I really want you to think about and wrestle with is I've got to give it up when it comes to counting hardships as evidence against the truth that God loves me. That's a false move. You're trusting a promise that was never made, that God never gave. But as I hope we'll see, what he did promise and what he will give is literally infinitely better. But I tell you from experience your silent, secret, almost subconscious grudges against God will devastate your faith, will devastate your confidence in Him. And lacking confidence in His goodness towards you, you'll be drained of grateful allegiance and devotion to Him. Let me ask a different way. Does God not love Johnny Erickson Tata? She's been in that wheelchair, a diving accident, I think it was, decades ago. And she has all kinds of chronic pain related to it day after day after day. She's, she just had cancer. And bless the Lord, it looks like she's clear from that, but still in the wheelchair. That's just one example. I read another testimony online this week, and this lady has had illness after illness, then her husband left her, then it, it's just like, that's just too much. And that's where we have to realize we've got to disconnect the hardships of this life with whether or not God loves us. In the way the Bible puts it, that doesn't count against evidence, as evidence against his love. Did God not love the Apostle Paul? What a terrible life he had. You know, again, I don't get these prosperity preachers. Their lives are nothing like the apostles and their existence. Did God not love Jesus? He had a hard life. He had a really, really hard life. And he had a brutal, horrible, horrible death. Disconnect. What does count as evidence of God's love to you? Two things primarily, more than two, but two primarily. The first, 
we've sung about and celebrated already, the cross. Romans 5.8, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, while we were still hell-deserving know-it-all, fist in the face of the almighty rebels, Christ died for us. And in dying for us, he paid the price for that rebellion, for that sin. As I said before, Paul, his profound theology, but it boils down there in Galatians chapter 2, the Son of God loved me. How do you know, Paul? He gave himself for me. And in doing so, he canceled all my guilt. And I'm going to go to heaven. I have God as my Father. I have the Holy Spirit transforming me. I have the fellowship of the people of God. I have the wisdom of inspired word of God. That all, all the curse will be reversed. Why? Because he gave himself for me because he died as a substitute and sacrifice. Here in his love, the Apostle John says, not that we love God, but that he loved us and gave his son as the propitiation, the wrath-averting sacrifice for our sins. And the Holy Spirit takes that truth and the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts in Romans 5, but it's shed abroad by reminding us of the cross. So what was sung before is the right advice. Behold the Lamb of God. When you're tempted to doubt the goodness of God, the love of God toward you, prayerfully survey the wondrous cross. Secondly, the proof of God's love and goodness toward you is the prospect for you, if you're a believer, if you're a truster in Jesus Christ, of this eternal, irreversible happiness in heaven that you're headed for. He who did not spare his own son, Paul says in Romans 8, again referring to the crucifixion, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also along with him graciously give us what? All things. You're living this life and you think there's something, this is missing from my life. This is a blessing. God describes it as a blessing. I know it's a part of a good thing of being a human being. And I don't have it and I'm not experiencing it. Believer in Jesus Christ, I promise you, you don't have it yet. But you will. He gives us all things. That's why Paul, he makes the calculation in verse 18 of the, seven, of the same chapter. I consider that our present sufferings, and at the time, they're just overwhelming. I mean, even in my own, the two or three, it's just, it's all you can think about. They dominate you. And Paul knew suffering way deeper than I have. But he still makes the calculation, I consider, I made this reckoning that our present sufferings are not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed in us. Do you believe deeply in the reality of the joys of eternity that are ahead for you? Again, 
if these are realities that we only barely believe, they will not do us very much good. And some people are like, oh, well, thinking about heaven, that's escapist, that's pie in the sky. Let me put it this way. If there really is an escape, why not think about it? And if there really is pie in the sky, I'm going to think about it. And all of this glorious existence, three score and ten, maybe more, that's the little while where we're subject to the sufferings, but utterly undeserved for the believer in Jesus because he purchased Glory for you at the cross is this sprawling happiness and wellness and joy and every relationship friendly and loving and fulfilling forever and then more. That's proof that God loves you. You're not healed, believer, perhaps, yet, but you will be. You'll be healthy, you'll be wealthy, you'll be whole, and you'll be happy. All I'm saying is what we deserved was everlasting judgment. We don't believe that deeply either. Don't have time for that, but we don't think our sin and guilt is that big a deal. God does. We don't believe deeply that we're not entitled to the good, we're entitled if we got, as we often think, I want what's coming to me, don't pray that prayer. <laughs> Truly, that's not what you want. And by cause of the cross, that's not what you're going to get. He's a good, good father who's going to give you this endless happiness. Calvin wrote about all of this. In one word, he only is a true believer who is firmly persuaded that God is reconciled and is a kind father to him, who hopes everything from his kindness, who trusting to the promises of the divine favor with undoubting confidence, confidence plus allegiance, with undoubting confidence anticipates salvation, not now, there's the forgiveness of sin now, but the full salvation is future. As the apostle shows in these words in Hebrews 3, we are made partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast unto the end. He thus teaches that none hope well in the Lord except those who confidently glory in being the heirs, future, future, of the heavenly kingdom. It will not suffice simply to hold that there is one whom all ought to honor and adore. Calvin is saying, you know, duty alone, realizing this is right in our head alone, won't win us over. Unless we are also persuaded that he is the fountain of every good. And that we must seek nothing elsewhere than in him. For until men recognize that they owe everything good to God, that they are nourished by His fatherly care, that He's the author of their every good, that they should never seek anything beyond Him, they will never yield willing service. Nay, unless they establish their complete unhappiness, uh, their complete happiness in Him, they will never give themselves truly and sincerely to Him. In other words, if there's not the deep confidence, there will never be the allegiance. 
For if there was for a while, it dries up. Make no mistake, true faith, true confidence in God will produce the allegiance. And that allegiance will express itself in the pursuit of sanctification, in service, in true worship, in devoted witness. Paul says, so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and may please Him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work. And that's what the grateful believer, so confident in God's undeserved goodness, that's their attitude. If there's no allegiance, there's no confidence. There must not be. The two are inseparable. But where there is faith, there will be allegiance to all the will of God and all the word of God. One day, because of Jesus and his atoning death on the cross, every believer Every truster of Jesus in this room will stand before the Lord on the day of judgment and because of Jesus and his cross will hear that final verdict about them. Justified. Not guilty. Declared righteous. In the right with the eternal judge. And so they'll hear, welcome in to my Father's kingdom. That reality, truly believed, is more than reason enough for a whole-souled gratitude and joy that produces this unconditional allegiance to Jesus. If you really believe these things, if you're really confident that this is God's love for you today shown at the cross and that will be demonstrated in the future in the glories of eternity, that confidence will produce the true allegiance. But remember what we've already said, one of the proofs that we look for in hope, not now. The Bible says if you have it now, it's not hope. We look for in hope is our future endless happiness. When our Lord and Savior makes all things new and whole and beautiful after the last here falls. Amen. After the last tear falls, after the last secret's told, after the last bullet tears through flesh and After the last child starves and the last girl walks the boulevard, after the last year that's just too hard, there is love, 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 there is love, 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 there is love. After the last after the last lie to save some face After the last brutal jab from a poison tongue
last dirty politician After the last meal down at the mission After the last lonely night in prison There is love, 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 love There is love, 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 love There is love And in the end, the end is oceans and oceans of love and love again We'll see how the tears that have fallen were caught in the poems of the giver of After the last plan fails, after the last siren wails, after the last young husband sails off to join the war, after the last this marriage is over, after the last young girl's innocence is stolen, after the last years of silence. Are you convinced and sinner? Why will you die? Let's pray. Father in heaven, may we know that all these good gifts are promised as a gift, a free gift, 
for any who will truly repent and believe, who will put their confidence in Jesus Christ to be the only Savior who brings us to true and eternal happiness. For anyone still refusing Christ this morning, I pray that you'll open their minds, that you'll conquer their hearts. They'll see what's offered, that they'll repent and believe and receive. And I pray for your children that they'll be confident because of the cross, because of heaven, that they are dearly loved. In Jesus' name, amen.